From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. There are bipartisan calls for police reform following the killing of George Floyd and several recent police killings of unarmed African Americans. House Democrats' proposal is called the Justice in Policing Act, and it's expected to be passed and sent to the Senate. Neither Senate Republicans nor the President have made their proposals. We'll examine what's in the House bill, hear from its supporters, and from those who oppose it for different reasons. Our daily COVID-19 update continues with a look at California's further reopening this week and with the cancellations of the Coachella and Stagecoach festivals. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us wherever you are in Southern California or listening around the world to kpcc.org or the KPCC app. Coming up later this hour, our daily update, the latest on COVID-19. We'll be talking with UC Irvine School of Medicine professor and epidemiological expert, Dr. Shruti Gohill. She'll be with us coming up later this hour. Next hour on Air Talk, we look at the demographic shift in greater Los Angeles over the past three decades and what that means for specific communities. We'll hear from listeners who've been longtime residents to talk about the changes that they've seen and how that factors in to political power in our region and uh, what sorts of changes are coming in the future as a result of demographics. Also, yesterday, the California State Assembly passed a constitutional amendment proposal which would uh, repeal Proposition 209 should voters approve that. It goes to the state Senate. Prop 209 banned any racial or ethnic preferences in state hiring or in college admissions among public colleges in California. But we begin today with the Justice in Policing Act. That's the name of the reform measure that House Democrats introduced formally yesterday with multiple people testifying uh, for and against the measure. It's expected to pass the House and to go to the Senate, where Republicans are in the majority. Republicans have not yet put forward their police reform measure, though it's expected there will be some Also, President Trump, uh, his advisors have said uh, that uh, they're hopeful they'll come up with a reform measure as well. But we're going to talk about what's specifically in the uh, new bill that's introduced in the House and expected to pass there. Joining us is the president and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation, the NCBCP, a civil rights and social justice organization. It's one of the major civil rights organization supporting the Justice in Policing Act. Melanie L. Campbell. Ms. Campbell, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Matt. And uh, wish I was in California. Uh, thanks. It's Larry. That's all right. Matt's the producer you spoke with, but that's that's okay. Let's uh, start right out with um, what this means for the legal determination about uh, criminal conduct by an officer. This would make it easier for prosecutors uh, to be able to charge and potentially convict officers. Can you explain a bit how this works? 
Well, I'll, well, first of all, let me say this. Uh, thank you again for the invitation. I'm going to say on the front, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get real loyally. That's fine. And I've, I'm an activist and an organizer, right, and a civil rights uh, uh, um, advocate. Uh, but the, the bottom line is really about accountability, uh, being able to hold elect, uh, hold, hold um, police officers accountable who are the bad actors. And we know all not all police are bad actors. It addresses ending racial profiling, right, really addressing that. Um, and, and, and eliminates qualified immunity for law enforcement. Um, it addresses uh, something that uh, uh, predates you and me and everybody uh, on this phone and even listeners, the systemic racism that it, it, it focuses on that and how that plays out uh, in law enforcement and in our, in, not just in law enforcement, but it is definitely there as we've all been living through these last few weeks um, based on what happened with George uh, Floyd. Um, and uh, deals with accountability, but also it deals with uh, uh, community policing. Uh, in, in one of my other lives, I worked for the late Maynard Holbrook Jackson uh, during when uh, the Rodney King incident took place, and where you had more community policing, uh, where there was relationships built. So it also addresses being able to deal with that side of the what we would call the front end. Uh, the back end is when something bad has happened, and we're dealing with dealing with accountability. But they're also the front end of building. Uh, more transparency and rebuilding relationships between the uh, the African American community and law enforcement, so that there's a, uh, a, um, not just accountability, but building trust uh, that is also a way of dealing with public safety and making our communities safer. Some uh, advocates have said this bill doesn't go far enough. They want to see much more sweeping changes. Some have called for defunding the police, where you would take um, uh, the majority of police funding up to 90 percent and redirect that money to social services, housing, mental health, and uh, community-based services. Um, Do you think, ideally, that there should be something that goes further than this, or do you think that this adequately um, addresses the problems? I, th- I think it's, uh, first of all, knowing that most funding, uh, as I mentioned, I work for um, uh, in-city government, and most funding that is with policing and law enforcement is, is, is local, right? But the funding that uh, comes from federal government, uh, the, the idea of just being able to have some better accountability to d- address uh, this, I think that's where folks are coming. The folks who are on uh, defunding the police. I think that depending on who you're talking to, people have a different idea of what that means. What you just mentioned, redirecting funds, that things that law enforcement doesn't want to do in the first place, social services types of things that get put into that could, could be redirected. So I'm not on the bandwagon of saying um, dismantle uh, police departments, but I do say that we need to reimagine what, what law enforcement looks like so that all of us so that I, as a black woman in this country, feel that law enforcement is there for me as to be a protector, protect and serve, and not have that idea of when I see my nephew walking out the house, worried about whether or not he's going to come home if he runs into uh, um, a law enforcement officer. So that that's where I stand on it. So I'm not a don't fund the uh, police department, but I am of redirecting funds where it's feasible, but also understanding that this bill is not going to go but so far in that because most funding doesn't come from the federal government. So it comes from getting right down into your local community and talking to the mayor and looking at and talking to your city council members and talking to your 
um, police departments and sheriff's departments and being able to figure out how we do this differently. And that's really where the real reform will take place. We're talking with Melanie Campbell. She's president CEO of the NCBCP, the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. They're one of the major civil rights organizations supporting the Justice in Policing Act, which was introduced yesterday by House Democrats and is expected to pass the House. Its future in the Senate is uncertain. Uh, Let me just share specifically what the bill would do, and our guests can also go deeper into this, but one of the the principal aspects of this is that it would no longer require prosecutors charging officers with meeting the bar that the officer's actions were willful. That that is a, a higher burden of proof. The law would allow an officer to be charged with uh, acting with reckless disregard for someone's life, causing that person's death. So under the current law, it's a federal crime to willfully deprive someone of their civil rights under the color of authority. But the officer, it has to be shown that the officer must have known that what he or she was doing was wrong and against the law and still decided to do it. So for a prosecutor under the current federal law, the prosecutor has to convince a jury force used was more than what would be reasonably necessary to arrest or subdue a suspect. Uh, So convincing jurors in the midst of the arrest, the officer made a clear, willful decision to cause someone's um, harm, so uh, that caused their death. Also joining us in conversation is John Jay College of Criminal Justice, professor of law and political science, and former NYPD officer and former prosecutor Eugene O'Donnell. Professor, welcome back. We appreciate your being with us. Share with us your thoughts about the different uh, aspects uh, of this policing bill. Well, policing uh, needed a very serious conversation over the past six years. Uh, I predicted policing in the country would collapse. It has essentially collapsed at this point. We need to save some time on some of this conversation. Uh, The hard truth is that nobody wants to put on a police uniform in urban America. That has not been addressed for the last six years to this moment. No one is answering who will do the work. The work was already radioactive um, and now will be totally, totally uh, unworkable and undoable. And when people talk about police abolition, we have to remember in city after city in the country, we we do have police abolition. We have it in Detroit. You have it in Baltimore. You have it in Milwaukee. Uh, The police are not reliable partners there in terms of responding to emergency calls. We've got high levels of violence. Um, The definition of this conversation now is that conflict uh, is is abused by the police. Uh, Coercion is abused by the police. And now you have the entire conversation revolving around the video. So in that sense, you've turned policing of the country into the over to the CNN you know, overnight producer. One video can stop uh, the entire city in its tracks. That's not a formulation that can work. So if anybody thinks you're not going to have uh, videos of uh, officers in doing things that are viscerally upsetting, that's, that's an impossible uh, standard. Uh, and something like a, a police officers being in uh, the work they do pledging that they will never come in contact with somebody's neck. That's an impossible standard. So most people are very reasonable. The community is very reasonable. However, the the most extreme, what, 3% of this conversation hijacked, not surprisingly. the uh, On the other side, the right side of this conversation has nothing to say. They don't do cities. So we needed to have a very, very long, complicated conversation. But we should save our time. Policing is 
you know, it's twilight era in the big cities. It has been. Their number of interactions they've had has collapsed. Uh, and uh, but even others, even small departments, most departments have not been directly impacted by this out of 18,000. But every chief in the country now has to reckon with the fact that all the good the agency does in three, four, five years can be immediately eviscerated if, if the entire thing is going to be uh, devolved to one event. And of course, we really need to talk about the extraordinarily irresponsible way mayors have conducted themselves and have made their cities in, in a time, by the way, where cities are going to be forlorn places now. Cities are going to shrink. There's not going to be a lot of reasons to commit to cities. Uh, we had riots in which the police stood by, sometimes ordered, sometimes not, because they simply can't even protect themselves now because of this conversation. So there's a very deep, very important conversation. But the practical thing that stares us right in the face that I've been warning about for six years, the Obama administration did that commission that they didn't even address this. Where are the young people, any young people, anybody ambulatory? Forget about high standards. Somebody can just stand up. How many How many people are we going to get to want to be in urban policing? And this, again, I, I will okay. now, but one of the issues in places like Minneapolis is they have walked themselves into a situation where they've essentially abolished the police anyway, so they may as well do it because nobody would want to have the job. Okay, now, well— Policing. Let's let's talk about some of the specifics. And you're mentioning the that you can have one disturbing videotape, and then that launches the whole conversation and 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 takes it over. But the um, what the concern is, of course, is that that's not an aberration. That there are multiple instances of police using excessive force or even acting with malice against individuals, and that it reveals an ongoing practice of discriminatory behavior by police that needs to be dealt with. We even hear from law enforcement officers themselves on this program are highly critical of their departments and talk about a culture within the department, um, a mentality that uh, can run roughshod over communities. So do you not think that that's an important conversation to have and, and that it goes beyond the one disturbing video? Well, I can speak about New York, where the facts and the data are absolutely clear, laid out on the table, irrefutable, that that's one of the most restrained police departments in the country, probably in the world, in the work they do. And you can prove it in every metric. Um, and by the way, in New York, I can speak specifically about New York, where video has been going for 24-7 for the last five or six years, with some notable exceptions. Okay. Almost every police interaction in that city, 5 million calls a year, 25 million calls in five years, almost every interaction is being recorded. Where are the abusive videos in New York City? There really aren't many videos. The sum total of all of the complaints of the Civilian Complaint Review Board in New York City, that forget about even the founded ones, even the extravagantly un, uh, untrue ones, uh, is a couple of thousand. And, and I've been saying this, you see, open up your files and show us all these bad things. The truth of the matter is, um, that the police not responding, the police not taking care of problems, the police not being reliable in communities where they're most needed, that is an epidemic issue. And the some people, a few, die when the police do their job. Thousands of people have died, have died, and will continue to die when the police don't do their job. We're talking with Eugene O'Donnell, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, professor of law and police science, former NYPD officer. Let me go back to Melanie Campbell of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. Professor O'Donnell was saying that in cities like Detroit and Baltimore, essentially, the police are taking a hands-off position because of how they have been cast. Um, Your response to that? Um, well, I work a lot with, um, I mentioned that I worked on, on a local level, and um, I would disagree on, on some level of that. Um, 
I work with Noble, National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, who's a member of our organization and sits on my board. So I work very closely uh, with um, at least African American uh, law enforcement officers and chiefs of police and all of that to to make sure that the work that we do, which is on the civil rights side, it, is is a balanced approach to that. Um, what I do remember, and when I worked in city government, and I worked a lot with law enforcement to deal with things like how do we de-escalate and work uh, to de- deal with issues around. Um, gun violence or working with uh, gangs in the community and that the relationships that need to be built, the idea of doing more, having more support around community policing does matter. Uh, things like having police officers who, 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 who live in community, wherever that's feasible and there are relationships, I do believe that that glass half full is, 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 is still possible. I'm not disputing someone who's worked in law enforcement. I myself have never worked in law enforcement, but I have worked with law enforcement um, uh, over the for 30 years uh, in working around issues of, of, of building trust and relationships in community. So I do believe that, that there is the opportunity through this Justice and Policing Act because there, are, there is um, uh, areas in here that is not only about the punitive side, but the what I would say the community side of building relationships and, build, and, and being able to provide those things so that law enforcement officers don't have to carry the burden of being a social, uh, in social services. Um, those kinds of things I think are possible if we can just find ways that we can find what can work. How can we do this better? How can we, because uh, the community needs it. Our young people are demanding it. You know, not, most of these young people who are on the streets, they want to see a better future. for. And, and so for those of us who've been around around, I want to try to help that. And that's one of the reasons our organization is even involved in this. This is not what I do every day, but it's, it's related to uh, the work of working on a democracy that's going to thrive. Uh, how that impacts law enforcement, there is a relationship. I appreciate it very much. I know you have to go, but thank you for being with us. President and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation, Melanie L. Campbell, her organization, one of the major civil rights organizations supporting the Justice in Policing Act, introduced this week in the House of Representatives. We're going to continue our conversation of what's in the bill. We'll hear from supporters and critics. It's Air Talk on KPCC back in one minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Shruti Gohill of UC Irvine School of Medicine. She's an infectious disease and epidemiological expert. We'll talk with her about the latest on COVID-19. Right now, we're talking about the bill that was introduced this week in the House of Representatives. Uh, It's called the Justice in Policing Act. It does a number of things, including creating a national database of excessive uh, force uses by law enforcement, It bans certain types of police holds and also uh, calls for, uh, under federal legal standards, um, a lower burden of proof required to convict officers of uh, abuse of of force leading to the death of someone in custody. Uh, uh, Let's introduce the conversation now. Retired uh, chief of police in California with 30 years experience in law enforcement. He's also a, a consultant. Uh, who works with different uh, organizations, uh, Tommy Tucson. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Tucson, for joining us on AirTalk. 
What do you see as as the aspects of of this justice in policing that you think are positive? There's so much to go over, uh, Larry, and I'll try to be brief. Um, Law enforcement is not at a paradigm uh, destruction. It is at a paradigm shift. Um, Having been in policing since the 70s and 80s, I knew that this day would come upon us. And so rather than talk about doom and gloom, I'm going to talk about from being a policeman, from working the streets in California, which is kind of a, a large area, uh, I want to talk about restructuring. Part of the Criminal Justice Act talks about restructuring. Absolutely, we need to restructure. In the restructuring, we need to look at hiring. This issue did not just happen now. I remember getting out of the police academy in 1980, going out in my police car and hearing the N-word um, different times as I was working patrol. And it didn't come from citizens. It came from fellow officers. So I knew I was in for it. So what we need to do is uh, I'm also a member of Noble. And this is my fourth social unrest in my life. Now, Noble is a National Association of Black Law Enforcement? Black Law Enforcement Executives. Right, Noble. National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. And most of the members are chiefs or lieutenants and above. So uh, Cedric Alexander was the president when I was a member. I'm still a member of Noble. And we have talked about this issue for a long time. Now, the training, the restructuring, the hiring is going to be looked at in a lot deeper as it should have been. We have all been saying for years in Noble, we need to change what we're doing. A lot of the issues in that Criminal Justice Reform Act deal with authority and who is in charge. Is it the police unions or the police chief? As a chief, I can tell you many times I wanted to discipline officers, remove officers, suspend or fire officers. Could not do do so because of the due process provisions and police union contracts. That's what you're seeing manifest itself across the country. Look who speaks out against police misconduct and tries to defend it. It's not the chiefs of police. We've all said uh, what was done to... uh, the tragic loss of life of George Floyd was was unconscionable, and we can't believe it. So looking at, and then the hands-off comment that was made earlier, it's called the Ferguson effect. After what happened in Ferguson, Missouri with Michael Brown, police officers did not want to get involved because their first thought is, am I going to be sued if I take action? So looking at the act, it gets into some very test the waters. And I think it should be not jumped into. I think you should take a lot uh, longer approach to quickly analyze what it is you're looking for. I, I to, one, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, I was just going to ask you, because you were talking about uh, significant changes in recruitment and in training of officers. But the point Professor uh, Eugene O'Donnell was making is that already it's very difficult to hire police officers, certainly the case in Los Angeles, where they have uh, many unfilled positions. And, and um, part of it's you're getting people who even uh, can be vetted and go through the process. But um, do you think it is possible to staff police departments if the standards become even more selective, particularly with the kinds of public criticism of law enforcement officers? Absolutely. Um, I have taught in colleges in California and been a policeman in California for many, many years, several decades. 
I will tell you right now, I know 200 kids that want to be police officers um, at one uh, college that I'm at. I know another college where there's probably about 300 that want to be. So, no, they still want to be it. They still want to do it. But, you know, we have a duty to society to make sure we hire the right people. The psychological exam, for, for instance, is the MMPI. We've been doing that since the 1970s. And you can see the results over the last four decades. We need to change how officers are screened. And we have personnel history reports that are done and everybody hired. I don't believe that they're given the full force and effect uh, to reject and disqualify people. And they're getting hired. Minnesota officer is a perfect example. Uh, we have uh, internal affairs investigations, but they're done by officers within the agency. So there's not a real balance uh, and control. And I think that needs to take place. But we need to look at the hiring practices. Training. I'm not sure what they do in New York, but in California, our police academies are probably the most anywhere in the country with over 900 hours of training. That's more than most states put together um, in training individually. And that training, what we have missed through this whole conversation, how are we talking to officers about handling communities of color? How are they talking to people of color? Does, do they understand the frustration, the animosity, the distrust that is in communities of color when they're in the academy? Well, we train in academies for 80 to 200 hours in crime scene investigation, traffic investigations, etc. The time we spent training a diversity, cultural mores and differences is generally less than 15 hours out of a 900-hour academy. And this is probably the norm nationwide. That has to change. Education and training has to be the new direction for law enforcement and community members collectively. All right. We're talking with retired uh, police chief in California, Dr. Tommy Tunsan. Uh, he's with us along with Eugene O'Donnell, John Jay College of Criminal Justice professor. I'm particularly interested in, in hearing from those of you who've been in law enforcement. We've heard from those who've been in law enforcement who have critical things to say, what sorts of reforms they think need to be done. Others who feel that um, it's unfair that um, uh, terrible incidents are being used to define policing generally. We welcome your calls at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, let me go back to Professor Eugene O'Donnell. Your your um, response to what we've heard from Dr. Toussaint that um, he thinks there are plenty of people going to law enforcement with even more rigorous standards. Well, it's just provably not true. Uh, the evidence is everywhere that policing is in collapse, and the Police Executive Research Foundation has documented and uh, recruitment pools collapsed prior to these events by 90%. And this was a poisonous, hateful campaign against the police, not from the community, by the way, not from the community. Community has not, the police and the community, frontline cops and the community are silenced in all of this. While an extreme fringe, many people have no connection to a community. Many people who, who themselves want their own safety protected are totally disregarding of the community's safety. But if anybody thinks the poisonous, vitriolic hate campaign that ran against the police online and on the streets, where people went into the streets to fight with the police, provoke the police, direct hate speech at the police, uh, uh, target African-American cops in uniform, that's going to help recruiting generally or if African-Americans are going to want to be in this job, the objective evidence now 
is in a gig economy, by the way. This is an economy where uh, police jobs pay well, there's pensions, there's benefits, and those jobs are literally going begging all over the place. And you're at a point now where the people who would want to be in policing, you, 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 you would have to think long and hard about whether you would put them into the jobs. What about the relationship between communities of color and law enforcement? Um, and we've had in Los Angeles some success with uh, particular um, targeted uh, groups that go into communities, um, really spend time there, interact and and build relationships. But, um, you know, that's not universal. And, and that's something that civil rights activists in Los Angeles have argued needs to be significantly expanded. What do you think would improve police relationships between, you know, the, themselves and communities of color? Well, bluntly, you cannot have the conversation dominated with a hate campaign towards the police. The well is totally poisoned. So if anybody thinks the police uh, are amenable now to a conversation about their about human rights generally, after they've been kicked up and down the street and vilified, and thousands of people, uh, I haven't seen anybody say anything terrible about Mr. Floyd, thank heavens, but I've seen tens of thousands of the most horrific, vile, hateful posts that have been made against the police. So you're, you're policing a city where the people that run the city have avowedly said they hate you. I don't think that's true on the ground. I don't think it's true, not measurably true. The police continue to be popular, even in places where they do their conflictive work. But the mayor, the mayor of the city and these cities, the mayor is making the most irresponsible, un, unhinged comments and agreeing to the most absurd demands, and it has been political gold dust. We're talking with Eugene O'Donnell, John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Here in Los Angeles, polling done by the Center for the Study of L.A. at Loyola Marymount University um, by our guest, uh, Fernando Guerra, uh, who's going to be joining us next hour, by the way, um, showed that there's a significant difference in how African-American Angelinos uh, view law enforcement than other uh, sectors of the city of Los Angeles. Uh, relations uh, considerably better between Latino and uh, Anglo and Asian American Angelinos than among African Americans, uh, even though there's still, even among African Americans in that poll, uh, a, a significant degree of support. But uh, let me go back to um, uh, Tommy Tucson to respond to that. Um, what we hear from Professor O'Donnell is the well is poisoned by the rhetoric and we can't we can't get anywhere reform wise um, with that kind of a tone. It's going to be a hard battle. Um, what he says is true as far as the the flavor and the feeling. But um, out in California, I'm a little bit more optimistic. Um, we hear the rhetoric. We hear the discontent. But I will tell you, the focus that I'm kind of looking at is trying to recruit more African-Americans. Uh, Perf that he talked about is an excellent, excellent source of information. But I deal morally, more with Noble, which is a, a national organization of black law enforcement executives. And there's a different view on how we do this. And, and I don't give up. He's right. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But I know a lot of young people out in California want to get in. It is hard to think that, wow, they hate me just because I'm a cop. Well, no. Uh, one of the th- programs that I've initiated in California that I'll soon be bringing to the East Coast, particularly New Jersey, is what I call transformational policing model, TPM. TPM is a 50-50 training tool where um, I've used it at Sacramento Police Department, and you know they had their issues. 
And what I do in TPM is in the classroom, I have 50% of police officers and 50% of community members. And like the professor said at John Jay, there is a lot of animosity in the room. Uh, officers feel like they're not trusted, they're not valued, so they don't want to do their job. But you'll find that when you put them both together in the same room, and I keep the crowd, the classrooms down to 50, 25, 25, and uh, Sacramento Police Department should be commended because from the chief on down, he has directed over the two-year period that I've been doing this, all of his department go through the training. You will find, you will find in the training that first hour or two, and I'm the moderator, is very caustic and very difficult. Community expresses their distrust and dishate of the police. Police talk about being the target of animosity, anger, and hatred. By the afternoon of the first day, I hear police officers coming to me on the side because being a chief puts me in a whole different uh, category than being an officer because I understand from the executive management level all the way through because I came up as a uh, line level officer. But the officers are saying, wow, they still feel that way about me even though I've done nothing to them. Hmm. Community members say, wow, they really care about us and they wanna make a difference. Community-oriented policing, my TPM is an elevated and amplified version of that. And you will find right. that after you do this type of training, the only training for law enforcement that's gonna be effective is joint 50-50 training where you collaborate with the community and the police officers in the same room. There are okay. some tough, there's some tough uh, comments that come from both sides uh, during this training, but I have found that it really helps to break down the barrier and restore trust. I want to thank you for being with us, retired uh, police chief here in California, 30 years law enforcement experience, Tommy Tucson, also from John Jay College of Criminal Justice, professor of law and political science, Eugene O'Donnell, former NYPD officer and former prosecutor as well. Justice Now tweets at AirTalk, gays were bashed by cops in West Hollywood after gay cops were hired. Uh, gay Abuse in the gay community declined. Cops should live in the zip code they patrol. Cops will care about the area they live and where their kids go to school. The community hired each cop to one-year contract with a job review. You can share your comments on the AirTalk page. Anita in Mid-City LA says, I think there needs to be a larger reform uh, for protection of African Americans by law enforcement. She says, I'm an African American who's had police called on me because of a false claim and the police immediately took the accuser's side. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC, the KPCC app, and kpcc.org. Coming up, our daily update on COVID-19 in 90 seconds. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Tomorrow, 11 o'clock, it's Film Week, as it is every Friday. I'll be joined by critics Claudia Puig and Amy Nicholson. We'll hear what they have to say about a new Judd Apatow film. 
It's uh, The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson, and the character he plays uh, draws on some elements of his real life. Marissa Tomei co-stars, Bill Burr in the cast as well. The King of Staten Island, we'll hear about that. Also, the new Spike Lee film, The Five Bloods, as four African-American veterans return uh, to Vietnam decades after the war. And also, Kenneth Branagh's new movie, Artemis Fowl, uh, starring Ferdia Shaw and Lara McDonald. Those are just a few of the films our critics will review Tomorrow on Film Week at 11 o'clock here on KPCC. And The Frame's John Horn will also be interviewing writer, director, producer Judd Apatow about the King of Staten Island and about uh, other matters of uh, having uh, production suspended during this era of COVID-19. That's part of Film Week tomorrow right here on KPCC. Well, speaking of COVID-19, from the UC Irvine School of Medicine, professor of medicine and associate medical director for epidemiology and infection prevention. Dr. Shruti Gohill is back with us. Dr. Gohill, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. So let's talk first about additional reopenings that are coming to Southern California later this week as we're going to see gyms and, uh, you know, additional uh, places opening up here in California. Your thoughts about things um, with with uh, distancing and masking still in place, but most things except large gatherings opening up. Yeah, you know, it's really, really tough balance, isn't it? Um, we came into this situation in you know February and March, on the West Coast at least, and um, didn't know where we would be heading. And I think that many of us by June, July, had thought that the cases would abate that we would see some stabilization. We certainly, certainly did flatten the curve with all the actions taking place in um, March uh, and onwards here. Um, But how long can um, society and our economy sustain these types of um, measures? And can we sensibly reopen? I think the question is important. The question is good. It is hard as a healthcare epidemiologist and infectious disease physician to start seeing our numbers um, locally uh, continue to to sort of climb, not uh, drop as we may have wanted it to by this point, or uh, certainly by the summer. So, um, you know, I, I'm holding my breath. I must say. And uh, do we see any shift as cases continue to rise in the fatality rate for COVID nineteen? Um, or does it appear that the death rate of the coronavirus is staying fairly consistent? I do think it's staying somewhat consistent here, but many things come into play on that. You know, when I say that the numbers are sort of increasing, you do see the the numbers I'm most interested in in some ways because of the overall mortality, as you you alluded to, is the hospitalization numbers. And uh, let's just take Orange County. we are seeing an increase in the number of people being hospitalized and requiring ICU care. These people end up being pe- uh, those who are uh, older um, and at the highest risk. And so that is sobering. Um, and it, it may be driven by some of the nursing home outbreaks that we're seeing locally. So it's hard to sort of completely judge that. But if if you look at you know, when somebody gets a coronavirus, uh, how many people are actually um, dying 
from coronavirus, it really is a stable number around, you know, one to two and a half percent in the, on the West Coast. So we have good capacity. For example, in Orange County, we have 50% um, of our hospital beds uh, available um, uh, still um, for this type of uh, COVID type of patient. So we have plenty of room. Uh, but if cases continue to climb, as I expect them to do in October, you know, in the fall, um, I think we could really be in some trouble later on. So we do need to take it with um, a week at a time, day at a time. We're talking with Dr. Shruti Gohill, UC Irvine School of Medicine. If you have questions for her about the latest on COVID-19, we're at 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. For Los Angeles County, starting tomorrow, gyms can reopen, museums, hotels, day camps, and arena sports can uh, be held again without public audiences in attendance at those events. All of that opens up in Los Angeles County tomorrow. Now, in Orange County, a couple of days ago, the uh, uh, public health officer, Dr. Nicole Quick, resigned after her order that face masks be used when uh, residents go into places of business was met by criticism of some residents. She reportedly received threats, and Dr. Quick um, resigned her position. Dr. Gohill, your thoughts about that? It's really unfortunate. You know, I think that um, while it isn't completely clear how masks may work in a non-healthcare setting, we certainly can guess that, again, you're shaving off pieces of risk each time you add something that um, could help people. Um, and it's unfortunate that um, that the attempts on public health side to make as many um, uh, efforts as it could to minimize risk uh, was met with this type of um, activity. But um, that said, uh, I do think that the public, from what I'm seeing, uh, there is a loosening (laughs) in mask wearing. Um, But I do see a lot of people making their own personal choices to go ahead and use their masks. And I think it's going to actually end up being all about public education, all about how to wear masks correctly, how to wash your hands, and maybe efforts on that end, whether a city ordinance is in place or not, really focusing on that would be probably, in my opinion, a critical point. We're talking with Dr. Shruti Gohill, UC Irvine School of Medicine. She's an authority in epidemiology and infection prevention, professor of medicine uh, at UCI School of Medicine, 866-893-KPCC. You can tweet at AirTalk or post uh, on the uh, AirTalk page. We had yesterday the announcements that uh, the 2020 Coachella and Stagecoach Music Festivals in Indio are being canceled. At the same time, Disneyland set its reopening date for mid-July. Um, what is the reasoning, in your view, behind Disneyland being able to reopen, but mass events like the music festivals not being deemed safe? I think that line is really, really um, hard to hard to draw that one in the sand. Um, you know, Disneyland um, certainly you have a broad age range. You have children all the way up into a senior category, uh, in sometimes close uh, proximity and sometimes indoor ventilated. Uh, I'm not sure what the ventilation is like in some of the rides, but you know, sometimes when you're waiting in line, you're on indoor spaces, and so in lots of areas for contact. Um, and so when some place like Disneyland opens up, 
you know, if they have the right right uh, protocols in place and are able to enforce some degree of, of compliance, one could see a reopening. But um, I have to admit, I am very, very curious to see how that um, plan is going to be um, borne out. Um, and again, you know, it, it still comes back to me that it's all about that public education. And what are we as individuals going to do when we walk in? You know, if we make the choice to go to Disneyland, what is going to be our own personal mechanism of protection? Are we going to carry hand hygiene around? Are we going to go ahead and wear that mask when we're standing in line in close proximity? And if we did those things, you, you could very well see that um, you could reopen and re-engage at a certain level without um, risking too much. And if you're older and you have immunocompromising conditions or something that really you shouldn't be in Disneyland um, and you stay home and you, you don't go to places like that, you know, you can see that you can predict, you know, protect the public um, with a really, really strong engagement plan on education. I think that's where I would put my efforts. Now, Coachella, um, you know, as an avid music fan myself, I must say, it, um, I saw that one coming. <laughs> and um, um, it makes good sense not to get that many people all in one area. Because you can't really distance, right? Everybody gets together shoulder to shoulder. Exactly. Shoulder to shoulder, and you're in these concert venues where exactly. So I think you you hit the nail on the head. It's just people are way too close, and if you even if you're wearing a mask, you know, there's a lot of um, you know joyous kind of shouting and screaming. Exultation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We'll continue with Dr. Shruti Gohill. Uh, she's professor of medicine, associate medical director for epidemiology and infection prevention at UC Irvine School of Medicine. You'd think all the weeks I've been pronouncing that. I wouldn't stumble. We'll continue and uh, we'll take your calls with questions at 866-893-KPCC. At least I remember the number. Back in one minute. listening to Wear Talk on 89.3 KPCC. You just heard from Nick Roman talking about all things considered. And I want to remind you, in case you've gotten out of the habit, because you're home during that time, working from home, or um, if unfortunately you're not working right now because of what's happened to the economy during COVID-19, remember you can ask your smart speaker, either powered by Google or Amazon, to play KPCC, and Nick will be there every afternoon, just as though you're driving in the car, Nick's there side-by-side with you as you walk around the house uh, instead of in your passenger seat. That's all things considered. Nick Roman here, and of course, Suzanne Watley every morning on Morning Edition here on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up next hour, we'll talk about affirmative action in California as Prop 209, which was passed more than two decades ago, is up for review potentially as soon as the November ballot in California. We'll talk about where that potential repeal of the ban on affirmative action in uh, California public higher education and in state hiring, where that stands. Right now, we're talking with Dr. Shruti Gohill, UC Irvine School of Medicine, where she's professor and associate medical director for epidemiology and infection prevention. Sharon in uh, Sherman Oak says, I want to swim in my condo 
condominium pool. Uh, the complex, which is 18 units, considering staggering schedules for people, uh, does Dr. Gohill think it's safe? And what is the best way to manage pool use? Great question. Um, well, one of my first questions would be around the, the crowding, of course. You know, is it possible in that space to create the six-foot distance and be able to um, manage that? And if so, that seems like a reasonable thing to do, especially if you um, stagger the um, the activity and uh, make sure that, you know, there's no more than the own family unit in one spot um, at, a, at a time. Now, when you're swimming, you know, in the actual pool itself, you would think that it would be a chlorinated pool. Um, and if so, should feel quite reassured that any germs that are in a pool that has chlorine in it, that coronavirus happens to be pretty easy to, to kill. Um, that said, think about um, your own symptoms before you show up or, uh, you know, one of the things I would say for your condominium unit would be to make sure that people who are symptomatic are not allowed to enter. Um, you know, how does that get enforced? <laughs> yeah, that good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. In an 18-unit complex, you're not hiring someone to screen swimmers. Right, right. So it all comes down to, again, public education, public feeling of community to say that I'm going to, prote- I'm going to do my part to protect everyone around me. Um, and that, that takes a little bit of a shift sometimes. Ebon uh, asks on the page, when should we expect a reliable antibody serology test, given the current ones produce large numbers of false positives? Uh, yes. Um, is the question around when it, will it be available? When will, yeah. When can we expect a reliable antibody serology test that's available for people to be tested? Yeah, it's, you know, the reliability, is, that's an important question because the actual test itself, can it, if there is antibody present in somebody's system, can it find it? Um, many of these tests are able to find it. That's not so much the issue as how do we interpret these tests? So if you and I have an antibody to this particular virus, do we know that it's going to be protective and do we know how long it's going to last? This is the question that is only going to be answered in the rearview mirror. It's going to be answered after time, after we get many uh, serologic tests out there, and then we understand looking backwards, studies are done to see if people who are re-exposed, perhaps during the upcoming surge this fall, um, do you get sick or not, right? We're only going to know this in retrospect. So, um, But the availability, I will say that there are many tests that are out there. Um, they all have differences in the how well we can interpret them clinically. Um, but if you actually have the virus, you have the antibodies in place, many of them are, um, are purportedly pretty um, sensitive and specific. The question, again, is interpretation. Uh, we have Hugo writes on the page, uh, to your knowledge, is there any work being done on a whole virion-killed vaccine similar to the original Salk polio vaccine? Uh. That is an outstanding question. And I, you know, we have very smart listeners, well, as you know from being on the show. That's a very educated question. And uh, to my understanding, uh, not there, there are a couple of entities, companies who have looked at it, who are beginning to look at it. And, um, but I don't believe that the production of something like that is um, being prioritized um, because of the amount of time it will take. And this virus um, 
similar to the cold virus. You know, there the it is thought that the mutation rate um, makes that a little bit more um, sort of difficult to tackle. Um, but no, to my knowledge, uh, nothing that I have seen that has come up that really looks convincing that that is the that is an approach that's being really actively looked at. I hope I'm not mischaracterizing what Dr. Anthony Fauci said, but I thought he said a few days ago that this coronavirus is in many ways more complex than HIV. Yes, you know, it's so interesting. We're, um, we're learning so much about how this virus is able to infect and do what it can do, the way it plays out in the human body, um, what it can, uh, the downstream of impacts of inflammation and um, making blood clots, for example, and how our body tries to deal with the virus itself is creating yeah. really secondary problems. Yeah. I thank you for being with us again, Dr. Shruti Gohill, UC Irvine School of Medicine, where she's professor and associate medical director for epidemiology and infection prevention. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. We got a jam-packed hour next. Tell you about it in a moment. Pleasure to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up later this hour, we focus on the demographic shifts in greater Los Angeles, how neighborhoods have changed uh, dramatically in some cases. We'll hear from Air Talk listeners what they've experienced in their own communities and how they think those demographic shifts, particularly over the past three decades, have affected politics, um, the uh, nature of their communities, and local culture. But right now, we turn our attention to Sacramento, where yesterday the state assembly passed a proposed constitutional amendment, which still has to pass the state Senate, and would potentially be decided by voters this November. It calls for a repeal of Proposition 209, which bans preferences racially or ethnically in state hiring, as well as in public higher education admissions in California. With us to talk about uh, what would be a, a dramatic change should voters approve it, John Myers, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Good morning, John. Good morning, Larry. Uh, so yesterday, I understand it was it was quite, um, I don't know if the right word would be emotional debate, but intense debate yesterday. Yeah, I'd say both. Um, you know, the events of the last couple of weeks have um, coincided to, with this topic in, in a way that I think really shaped the dynamic of, of what we heard from lawmakers at the Capitol and what I think we're going to hear if this moves forward uh, across California and with the electorate this fall. Uh, this is not the first time that um, that lawmakers in Sacramento, black lawmakers, Latino lawmakers in particular, have sought to have a do-over on the issue of affirmative action in California. And uh, in past times, it has not had the intensity that it had yesterday during this very long debate, more than two hours of debate. And simply put, this is an effort, as you said at the top of the broadcast, it's a, simply put, it's an effort to ask the voters to rethink uh, California's ban on preferential treatment in uh, college admissions and in awarding of contracts based on race 
or on gender. Uh, in 1996, that was put in the California Constitution by Prop 209. It's a pretty simple provision in the Constitution. And this measure would strike that. That is all this does. It just eliminates that part of the California Constitution, again, allowing those kinds of policies to be used more broadly in uh, California government and certainly in higher education. It's a big topic. As you said, it's got to go to the state Senate next. I'd say its odds are pretty good there, and I think the odds are pretty good that California voters are going to see this on the ballot, this discussion, on November 3rd. Which means that November ballot is going to be packed with some big issue initiatives. Uh, it is. I mean, if we will see the full list of these by the end of this month. But just so folks who are listening understand, I mean, in addition to topics like this, we're going to see a rethinking of Proposition 13's property taxes. We're going to see a conversation about the nature of work and the gig economy and whether someone is or is not an employee of a business, which is kind of geared toward the uh, ride-sharing universe. Uh, we're going to see several others. We're going to see a couple of criminal justice measures, the future of bail in California. And in some of these, Larry, of course, when we talk about criminal justice and we talk about taxation and the rights of workers, you know, you can see that Venn diagram crossing over here into what California looks like now. Who are Californians? What do they think? What, what do they value? What does the culture of California look like? And what do we need to do to acknowledge that California is more diverse than it has ever been? Uh, and this is a really interesting conversation. And so this part uh, about uh, affirmative action, I think, is going to be a centerpiece of a lot of those discussions. We're talking with John Myers, Sacramento Bureau Chief for the Los Angeles Times. Um, historically, the um, debate over affirmative action has uh, heavily involved Chinese American and Korean American uh, communities because of concerns that affirmative action would limit uh, those communities' access, particularly to higher education. Um, did did this um, was this revealed at all in the debate yesterday with Asian American members of the assembly? It, it was, and I would say it's a it's a familiar conversation, but with a different outcome this time. And so I roll back the clock to 2014. The very same proposal was up in front of the California legislature. Uh, it cleared the California State Senate. It never came to a vote in the assembly, in part because there were a handful of Asian American lawmakers who did not want to move forward on it. Some of the same concerns were voiced yesterday, which was that um, there are concerns in some Asian American communities that reimposing these uh, these different kinds of rules are going to be detrimental to their students, to those families, uh, and that those families feel like that they are doing what they have to do to succeed now and are succeeding and are worried about falling backward in some ways. In 2014, that scuttled this entire effort. On uh, Wednesday in the state assembly, some lawmakers uh, representing Asian American communities said, I have these concerns, but I think this is the right thing to do for now. And so the measure moved forward. But I think we are going to continue to hear uh, a robust conversation about what it means to rethink um, ways that we can move forward on um, uh, helping different communities of color in California. And uh, I don't know where the future lies on that, but I think it's a it's a cultural and a political debate that this state probably is long overdue having 
since Prop 209 went into effect in 1996. L.A. Times, Sacramento Bureau Chief John Myers with us. John, thank you so much. Uh, JSK uh, helpfully put the text of Proposition 209 on the AirTalk page. If you'd like to take uh, a look at it, reads, The state shall not discriminate against or grant preferential treatment to any individual or group on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in the operation of public employment, public education, or public contracting. Uh, And it goes on to uh, say the state includes, but not necessarily limit to, the state itself, any city, county, uh, public university system, including the UC, community college, uh, school district, special district, uh, any of those entities within the state. We're talking about Proposition 209, which was passed back in 1996. Whether 24 years later, Californians will vote to retain it or to repeal it through a constitutional amendment. Uh, I welcome your comments. We're at 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. Joining me from the Campaign for College Opportunity, the president of the organization, Michelle Cicados. Thank you very much for for being with us. Uh, Why do you think that from a higher education perspective, Prop 209 should be repealed? Thank you, Larry, for having me. You know, the the number one reason is that our higher education system just doesn't reflect the diversity of California. And our future depends on our ability to educate and to give college opportunity to all students. Um, And ACA 5 and the use of affirmative action is a great way to ensure that we have that kind of representation at our public universities. Also with us is Richard Sander, economist and law professor at UCLA. His uh, recent book from a couple years ago, Moving Toward Integration, the Past and Future of Fair Housing. Professor Sander, good to have you with us. Uh, What are your concerns about the effort to repeal 209? Well, thank you, Larry. Um, I think there, there are two big issues. One is that we shouldn't confuse this bill with affirmative action. Affirmative action is is most affirmative action is about increasing opportunity and doing things like um, reaching out to underserved populations and trying to smooth the path so that people are aware of and prepared to take opportunities. This is a bill about preferences and discrimination. It's a bill that would allow the state and the universities to discriminate in favor of some against some groups and give preferences to other groups. So it's essentially a bill to legalize discrimination. Second point is that um, when Prop 209 passed, higher education in California actually took a huge step forward because it started doing other types of affirmative action that did not involve discrimination. It did a much better job of, of reaching out to underserved high schools. It formed partnerships between different campuses and poor performing high schools. It made students much more aware of what they needed to do to qualify for admission. It had a big impact in raising high school graduation rates. And the upshot of that was that we had a dramatic increase, not only in the applications from the African-American and Latino communities, but in the enrollment and, most importantly, the success of those students in the university. So before Prop Prop 2 and I was passed, the main minority presence in the UC system was through very, very large preferences used by UCLA and Berkeley. After Prop 2 and I, enrollment at those two campuses did go down because those schools phased out preferences, which were enormous. They were equivalent to hundreds of SAT points. But enrollment in the system went up dramatically, 
And students had higher GPAs. They had much higher graduation rates. They were much more likely to graduate in four years. And they were much more likely to major in STEM fields. So every measure that you looked at shows really positive effects on on uh, Hispanics and, and African Americans after Prop 209. What uh, Ms. Sequedos, though, was saying is that um, it's still not reflective of the state overall. We've seen dramatic demographic shifts in the state over the past 24 years since the, the passage of 209, so you would expect to see additional Latino uh, students um Asian-American students in UCs just as a result of the shifting of, of the population. That's true, Larry, but the proportions have actually gone up dramatically. So the proportion of, of students in 1998, when Prop 2 and I went into effect, who were Latino, uh, was uh, about 7%. Now it's about uh, it's well over 25%. The numbers have actually almost quadrupled for, for Latino students. The number of African American students has doubled during that time, and and those are freshman enrollment numbers. What's always key to this debate is understanding that um, that because students were better matched at schools where they could succeed after Prop 209, because there wasn't discrimination putting them in campuses where they were going to have trouble succeeding, their graduation rates have gone up very sharply, and that means that we have more successes. the The, the focus this discussion should not be about um, uh, freshman enrollment as much as it should be about graduates. How many people are actually successfully getting an education? Richard Sander, UCLA professor with us. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We go back to Michelle Sequedos of the Campaign for College Opportunity. Professor Sander making his argument that you actually see a more representative graduating class at UC now than you did before. Yeah, I have a hard time understanding what he means when he says a huge step forward. If you look at the numbers, Larry, prior to Prop 209 banning affirmative action, 33% of freshmen admitted to the UC were Latino. Uh, After Prop 209, it dropped to 12%. That's not a huge step forward. For Blacks, prior to the ban of affirmative action, it was 8%. Afterwards, it was 3%. And today, in spite of our growing diversity in the population, we still only have a quarter of Latinos admitted into the University of California, even though Latinos are 39% of the population. And the Black enrollment at the UC is at at 4%. It has never recovered from that. So that's certainly not a huge step forward in my book. And, you know, to succeed is important. We are absolutely in agreement with Professor Sanders, that student success is important, but you can't succeed, Larry, if you're never admitted into the university. The idea that, you know, preferential treatment, in my opinion, is a really nice talking point for folks that only want to talk about preferential treatment when it comes to race. They don't talk about preferential treatment when it comes to legacy admits, when it comes to athletes admitted. And we saw the perversion of what wealthy folks went to extremes in the college admission scandal just last year. Um, But my understanding is when you're talking about the University of California system, legacies don't get an advantage, do they? No, not at the University of California, but just making the point that 
you know, the concern around preferential treatment doesn't seem to be equalized across the nation from opponents of affirmative action. You want to respond to that, Professor Sander? Well, my biggest problem with with the proponents of this measure is that they they simply make stuff up. I'm looking right now at the data on the 1997 freshman enrollment of California students attending the University of California. There were 3,100 Hispanic students who entered that year out of total enrollment of 23,600. That's about uh, 13%. And Michelle just claimed it was 33%. The percentage of blacks was a little under 4%, not 8%. So the proponents are making up numbers. You've got to talk about real data. You have to talk about reality for this to be a fair and honest debate. Michelle Siqueiros, your, your response to that? Well, the data is what the data is, and I'm, I'm looking at data. I'm happy to share that, you know, with um, Professor Sanders and, and everyone else in terms of the numbers. We have where, 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 let me just ask each of you your source. Uh, I'm sorry, just to make sure we're talking about the same numbers. Uh, uh, Michelle Cicados, where, where do your numbers come from? So I am looking at a figure from Ed Trust West. That's published. I'm happy to send you the link. Um, and it looks at um, eligibility and admissions um, from those years pre and post Prop 209. All right. And, and Professor Sander, where are you getting yours from? I'm getting mine from the University of California. And I will, I will send you their official report that shows the enrollment from every year from 1989 to 2013. It's got the exact numbers. When Michelle is apparently reading from is some kind of process document. It's propaganda. It's not data. So, Larry, I think you would do a real service by posting this information on uh, cable. Well, Professor Sanders, are you are you arguing that, that admission rates for Latinos and Blacks have recovered, have been higher than they were prior to affirmative action? Because that's simply not true. Absolutely. So and that it is, is false. Your no, statement that... Hold, hold on. I'm, I'm, one at a time. There are more that there are more applicants from Latinx and Black and Asian American communities, obviously, because the demographics have changed, and also because the UC changed its system and encouraged and admitted you could apply to multiple campuses. So we're count, you know, when before you had to apply one campus at a time, now you can apply to as many of the UC campuses as you'd like. So I, you know, I, I, I think it's troubling that we're, we're focused on this piece when the reality is that if you look at who is admitted into the University of California and who is enrolled in the University of California, it does not reflect the population. All right. And uh, the and per- of our state depends on it reflecting more equitably what our diversity is. All right. Professor Sander, quick response. I need to break that. Okay. Just to be clear, the application rates have gone down for all groups because there are many, many more people applying than there used to be. There are 100,000 people applying to UCLA every year now. So application rates have gone down, but relative application success of African-Americans and Hispanics have gone up. And if you look at the outcomes, which is what really matters, that's where the dramatic differences are super obvious. Okay, we'll continue our conversation with Michelle Siqueiros of the Campaign for College Opportunities. She's president of the organization. With us, Richard Sander, economist and professor of law at UCLA, author of Moving Toward Integration, the Past and Future of Fair Housing. I'd like to hear from you about yesterday's state assembly passage of a constitutional amendment proposed for the November ballot, which would repeal Proposition 209 banning 
um, racial or ethnic considerations for employment, contracting, or admissions to California higher education. We're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. We'll be back in one minute. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you're having a, a good morning so far. We're talking about the state legislature moving toward placing on the California ballot in November a constitutional amendment which would repeal Proposition 209, which banned racial and ethnic preferences in state and local communities hiring, also in California, higher education, granting those preferences. We're at 866-893-KPECC. Also with us is poet, writer, and Atlantic Magazine uh, author of the piece, Affirmative Action Shouldn't Be About Diversity, Kimberly Reyes. Ms. Reyes, thank you very much for being with us. Do you think California voters uh, should take up a repeal of Prop 209? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I actually think that it will be passed. I think the time is absolutely right. I think that the pandemic um, showed a lot of people that the system is broken um, and has always been intentionally broken for a lot of us. Um, And I think that um, people are seeing that, you know, this needs to be a historical conversation and not an ahistorical one just about diversity, but about reparations and justice for past harms that have never been accounted for. Um, people are ready to have that conversation. If you look at the New York Times uh, bestsellers list right now, it's pretty much all about, um, you know, racial justice. And so I think that it's been kind of a perfect storm. And, and that combined with the college admissions bribery scandal last year, I think people are really ready for some change in this department. So you think that because of historic racism, um, giving preferences, particularly to African-Americans, would be a way of, of leveling the playing field by doing that? You know, I think that words matter, and I think that the framing has always been problematic here. Um, You know, words like preferences or if we're talking about meritocracy, which people are finally now acknowledging never really existed, handouts. I mean, affirmative action has always been in place for white people in this country. Um, And so what we now have to do is acknowledge that and put in systems that at least attempt to repair that. All right. We're talking with poet, uh, writer Kimberly Reyes, joining us on Air Talk, Professor Richard Sander at UCLA, and Michelle Cicados, the Campaign for College Opportunity. Let's talk with Larry in the Mid-Wilshire District. You're on Air Talk. Hi, Larry. While I believe that affirmative action was not the appropriate legislation to solve the issue, uh, repealing affirmative action also wasn't. And the reason I say that is because we simply need to come up with a new solution if uh, it's going to cause us to have to repeal affirmative action or or cause us to uh, repeal the ban on affirmative action. You mean, excuse me, you mean repeal the ban on affirmative action? Is that what you're saying? I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, it's going to cause us to repeal the ban on affirmative action. Uh, then that's just uh, we're wasting time here. We need to come out with new legislation currently at UCLA. And I'll be very brief about this since 1990 uh, to show you why uh, 209 was not the solution. Since 1996, the black population has dwindled at UCLA. Oh, other minorities have increased at UCLA, but 
only the athletes at UCLA uh, apparently are, are in, uh, you know, are the people that they're accepting for admissions. And what we're seeing at, you know, across the board, and not only uh, in government contracts, in just about any other area that you look at with this, it's just going to require us to come up with some new legislation. All right, Larry, I appreciate your call. Uh, let me go back to Richard Sander at UCLA. Your response to that, that there needs to be something more thorough going. Well, I have to respond to both Larry and Michelle. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Kimberly, which is that we really have come up with something in the wake of 209. What happened after 209 is the university said, well, we can't use racial discrimination anymore. So what can we do? And they, they started building all these bridges. They changed the institution. They invested over $100 million in new initiatives. Before Prop 209, the African-American four-year graduation rate from UCLA was 14%. Now it's about 45 to 50%. It's a dramatic improvement. The six-year graduation rates have always been higher, but they also increased very sharply. So the system is working much, much better now in terms of actual outcomes. And what's frustrating to me is is this sort of discussion of false facts instead of actually looking at what's happened. What about what um, Kimberly Reyes was was saying, that you still have uh, less African-American representation and you've got that coupled with the fact of uh, the historic effects of racism, essentially, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing parts of her argument, there is no way here for African-Americans to catch up. Well... So African-Americans make up about 4% of UC freshman enrollment. That's, that is a little, that's somewhat lower than their percentage of, of African-American high school graduates, but not a lot. The African-American population in California is much lower than it used to be. So the fact that the African-American presence at UC, even in freshman numbers, has increased is, is pretty striking. And the key problem, Larry, is that you can't fix this problem. You can't fix all the issues with racial inequality in America by giving people a discriminatory boost when they start at a, at a UC university. You've got to go into the high school system. You've got to go into the uh, K through 12, the entire K through 12, address things like infant mortality differences. All those things affect school achievement. And we have to you know, build on all those things to fix the system. What we have learned is that when you just put a Band-Aid on and you give someone a, a, a large boost into a very elite college, they have these really terrible graduation outcomes that I mentioned before. Richard Sander, UCLA economist and professor of law. Let me go back to Kimberly Reyes uh, for a final word here. Ms. Reyes, your response. Um, well, I, I'm not sure we're all looking at the same numbers here. I'll say that. But um, I, for sure, the um, African-American population in California did go down, but that's another, the reason for that was systematic racism and the prices of living in California. And um, I, I just, I, again, I don't think that we can get away, I, I think that we agree on the fact that you have to have structural change, massive structural change, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. And I do agree that this is a Band-Aid for massive structural change. But in the meantime, are we just going to let generations fall through the cracks while we're trying, hopefully going towards massive structural change? I mean, what is the solution in the meantime? 
Thank you very much. That's Kimberly Reyes joining us on Air Talk. Michelle Cicados of the Campaign for College Opportunity and Richard Sander, UCLA professor as well. And we are going to have the the sets of data that um, were different numbers being used by our two guests, Michelle Cicados and, and Richard Sander. And we'll get those after this segment now and post those on the Air Talk segment page at kpecc.org. Yesterday on Air Talk, we looked back at what uh, was similar and what was different in this year 2020 from 1992. Rodney King's beating, uh, the original acquittal of the officers in the case, the Christopher Commission, and the reforms that came afterwards. But also dramatically changed over the past nearly three decades is the composition of greater Los Angeles itself. Significant numbers of African Americans moved from what have been historically black neighborhoods of Los Angeles to the Inland Empire, to the high desert communities in Inland California. The Latino population of California has grown considerably as well. Asian-American populations, Korean-American, Chinese-American most specifically, have also grown significantly. All of this has had an effect on the political dynamic of greater Los Angeles, as well as relations between police and the communities they serve. Joining us to talk about these differences is Fernando Guerra, professor of political science and director of Loyola Marymount's Center for the Study of Los Angeles. He's also a member of our Southern California Public Radio Board of Trustees. Professor Garrow, great to have you back with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Larry. Your study, by the way, I should mention, was was cited in the first hour, so <laughs> what you were on to talk about with us last time. So let's talk about these shifts. First of all, what have we seen, just looking at numbers in the composition of Los Angeles, comparing 92 to today? Well, we've seen, obviously, a continuing demographic shift. The history of Los Angeles is the history of demographic shifts from being a, obviously, uh, indigenous and Spanish and uh, Mexican and American city, uh, and then increasingly becoming one of the widest cities in the history of the U.S. Census. In 1900, L.A. ever recorded it in the non-immigrant, non-minority and now you have it be one of the most multicultural cities. And of course, the African-American population is significant with the uh, really the great migration that also came to Los Angeles in the 40s and 50s. Uh, the, in the 1960 census, there were more blacks than Latinos in the city and the county of Los Angeles. And by the 1990s, that had already stabilized and actually began to decline a little bit. But since then, it's declined both in absolute numbers and in percentages. And so in the, in the 90s, it was probably about, in the city of Los Angeles, about 14%. Now it's way below 10%, and the trends will uh, continue in that uh, regard. So the black population in the city of Los Angeles has declined drastically in relative and absolute terms. It's funny, growing up in Los Angeles, and part of it is the community where I grew up, southwest L.A. and, and Inglewood, um, in my mind, L.A. was such a black city, and it was, you know, when I went to, to summer camp, I was the only white kid in the cabin of African-American uh, boys joining me when I was a kid. And um, that boyhood experience for me 
um, that's sort of how I thought of L.A. Because all, you know, the the parents of all those kids came for factory jobs and moved west from places like Louisiana and Texas. And and that, to me, was just so much the fabric of Los Angeles. And now I think of it as such a Latino city. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we traditionally think of Watts as a black city, but now it's over uh, 60% Latino. We think of uh, Compton as a black city, but it's now over 60% Latino. We think of Inglewood as a black city, but it's now over 50% Latino. And you continue to see this trend. And that's one of the impacts, the movement of Latinos, especially Latino immigrants, first generation immigrants, moving into these cities and putting pressure on the rental stock. Uh, The typical African-American family is very American in the sense of a nuclear family with one wage earner. And it's not unusual for the immigrant families to have more than one or two wage earners. So while they may make a little bit less money than African-Americans individually, the household makes a lot more money and puts pressure on the rents, which then uh, creates this, um, this dislocation in terms of housing. And I think that's one of the major impacts that it's been having on the African-American community. We're talking with Loyola Marymount professor and director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola, Fernando Guerra. I welcome your calls because I'd really like to hear from longtime Angelinos. What sort of shifts you've seen in your neighborhood? If you've stayed pretty much in place, what have you seen and how has that affected conversations with your neighbors, the political composition of the neighborhood you live in, um, the, the just everything from day Today's social interactions, what changes have you seen in your neighborhood over the course of the past nearly three decades? 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. Fernando, uh, one of my colleagues at KPCC, one of our editors who's originally from New York City, um, was talking in, in a meeting last week and he was saying, you know, coming from New York and L.A. feels so different. This feels like the most segregated city that I've been in. And um, is that something that is borne out with our residential patterns? Oh, uh, absolutely. The vast majority of Latino school children attend very heavily segregated uh, uh, schools, as well as African-Americans and as well as whites. Um, while we are multicultural in the aggregate, in the microcosm, when we take a look at neighborhoods, we are still incredibly uh, uh, segregated. Uh, and sometimes the segregation in, uh, index declines, but that's mostly because you're having Latinos and African Americans in a moment of transition uh, in, in certain neighborhoods. Uh, and so, you know, every time you take a snapshot, you don't know if it's that, that's the permanent. Uh, of what's happening or it's just in transition with these demographic shifts that are constantly occurring throughout Los Angeles. Well, can- incredibly mobile society in America, not internationally speaking, and L.A. is probably the most mobile of all the major cities. And so there's constant uh, a movement within the neighborhoods. We're talking with Fernando Guerra, Loyola Marymount professor. We'll talk with UCLA Dean and Professor Darnell Hunt coming up. And Pastor J. Edgar Boyd, the senior minister at First African Methodist Episcopal Church. Speaking of Los Angeles history and an institution that's seen change, First AME is nearly 150 years old. We'll continue in 90 seconds with your calls and more conversation on the demographic shifts of Los Angeles here on Air Talk.
so good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Reminder, Film Week tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. Our critics Amy Nicholson and Claudia Puig review the new Judd Apatow film, The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson, which is in part based on his life experiences. Spike Lee's new film, The Five Bloods, starring Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, and Isaiah Whitlock, Jr. And we'll hear about Artemis Fowl from Kenneth Branagh. Those are just a few of the films that our critics review tomorrow at 11, Film Week, here on 89.3 KPECC. We're talking about the demographic shifts in Los Angeles. If you're like me and you've lived here for decades, you've seen very dramatic changes. The question is, well, what does that mean for political expression, for the ways that we relate to each other in greater Los Angeles? 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Dia in South L.A. says black people in L.A. were pushed out, forced to move to places like Palmdale and Moreno Valley. They didn't want to leave, but because of structural discrimination against the black community, low income black families had to move out. That's Dia, 866-893-KPECC. I'm joined by UCLA Dean of Social Sciences and Professor of Sociology and African American Studies, Darnell Hunt. Dean Hunt, thank you for being with us this morning. Great to be here, Larry. So from your perspective, how do you see L.A. changing? Well, there's no question that uh, the story of L.A., if you look at its history, is one of demographic change. Um, The African-American population exploded in the the first half of the 20th century with all of the migration from the South and in places where people were trying to escape Jim Crow and and come to this new land of promise um, in L.A. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about L.A. as this black mecca when he came here in the early, early 20th century and and saw black people living in relatively nice homes and certainly uh, having life experiences that, that differed from black people in other parts of the country. Of course, as, as time progressed um, uh, and structural racism uh, reared its ugly head, um, uh, we began to see that the dream wasn't quite what people thought it was. And in many ways, I think um, 1965 Watts Riots, 1992 L.A. Uprising, um, was kind of a, a turning point uh, of sorts. And in fact, the 1990 census um, uh, saw for the first time, I'm sorry, the 2000 census saw for the first time a decline, an absolute decline in the black population, which was again repeated with the, the 2010 census. So you, you did see people leaving the city uh, for a number of reasons. I think um, the, the loss of jobs, deindustrialization, rising costs, uh, police brutality, um, uh, you know, educational issues with the quality of our schools. There were any number of reasons that, that motivated black people to, to move to the Inland Empire and other places. Dean Hunt, uh, what about black home ownership? Because one of the things, and if I'm wrong, you can debunk this, but I, I thought that home ownership rates among African Americans in Los Angeles were considerably higher than what you saw in other metropolitan areas. Well, certainly there was a point in history when that was the case, and I think that that was one of the reasons that L.A. was so attractive um, as a destination uh, during the periods of migration. But certainly uh, uh, today, with um, the extraordinary cost of living in L.A. and and the challenges that that many Angelinos have faced in terms of you know finding uh, you know adequate employment, um, it's it's a tough place to, to be and to survive. And I think that's why people have 
know, started to return, return migration back to other places where the cost of living is more, more, more manageable. One of the things um, Fernando Guerra, um, when he's talked about this issue uh, before, talked about that there have also been a return of some African-Americans in Los Angeles to the states from where their families had originally um, emigrated, um, you know, places like Texas and Louisiana and Tennessee and, and places like that. And uh, just among, um, you know, the world that you're in, Dean Hunt, have you seen much of that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I can tell you, give you lots of anecdotes about people who um, participate in that type of return migration. Uh, it, it happens quite a bit. Um, again, I mean, if you if you happen to be lucky enough to invest in the L.A. real estate market at the right time, and and you know your your property appreciated in value, uh, you could move to some of these other places that your your ancestors came from and literally buy your home for cash. And, and people have been doing that. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons we're, we're seeing the decline in the absolute number of, of African Americans in Los Angeles, to a point where the you know their share has gone from you know thirteen fourteen percent of the county population down to about eight percent now. We're talking with UCLA Dean Darnell Hunt. He's also professor of sociology and African American studies. Joining us as well, senior minister of the First African Methodist Episcopal Church of L.A., Pastor J. Edgar Boyd. Pastor Boyd, thank you for being with us again. We appreciate it. Thank you, Louis. Good to be here. Your church, uh, obviously, with a central historic role in African-American Los Angeles, how, how, if at all, has the demographic shift and, and African-Americans moving um, to inland locations affected your church and its membership? Uh, yeah, exactly. And it has for all African-American congregations in uh, Los Angeles, especially those uh, who were organized uh, over um, 75 to 100 years ago. Um, with the shifts of persons moving out of the uh, central uh, Los Angeles area and surrounding uh, communities in the county, uh, to Palmdale, to Moreno Valley, to Pomona, and other places, it, it seems like those communities actually were built uh, as a repository for the collection uh, of the outward migration uh, of African Americans. And um, so the congregation has gotten smaller. People are still straining. People are still making that sacrifice and meeting the challenge. They, they, they make that commute on a Sunday morning. So the services that the church normally and typically ha- have done uh, in prior years, uh, looking at the involvement and participation of professionals and those who are dedicated to the ministers of the church uh, living in the community, or maybe across town or, or a few blocks away, uh, those persons came in to help to um, to provide uh, leadership and provide resources for the feeding programs, for the after-school tutorials, and and for the uh, enrichment programs that add the quality of life uh, for many persons who came to uh, this facility and on our campus to get relief and to get support and help. So with those persons moving out of the area, uh, they'll they'll make that challenge and, and and that commitment to come back in on Sundays and perhaps on on Saturday, depending upon what it is and uh, what the frequency uh, requirement would be. But the kind of help we've had before, that that, that person, uh, the number of persons we could actually get on the phone and call at a moment's notice, we need your help uh, to, to unload food for a homeless family. We need your help 
to unload some furniture for somebody who might uh, need need the help. That kind of uh, of availability has been uh, challenged and strained tremendously. Yeah, I was still impressive. You've got people who are commuting long distance to come to services at First AME because of of the significance of the church's role in their life. They're, that they're willing to to make that trip. I'm inviting uh, Angelinos to call Air Talk listeners to weigh in if you're a longtime resident. What sorts of shifts have you seen in your community? 866-893-KPECC. Let's talk with DB in South Los Angeles. Hi, DB. What changes have you seen? Um, I grew up in Venice uh, in the 80s. My father, who was black, and my mother, who was white, gentrified in Ven- to Venice, uh, moved to, into Venice in the, in the late 60s. And as a teenager, I was very angry with the noticeable gentrification that I saw. And then I then moved out and moved to South L.A. with my wife, who is white, and our two kids. And we're now gentrifying South L.A. <laughs> um, and we live, we live a few blocks away from Florence and Normandy and kind of the epicenter of, you know, the L.A. riots of 92. Yeah, where my great-grandfather lives, as a matter of fact, right near that intersection. So, D.B., in looking at the shift, how um, did you feel like your sort of relationship with Los Angeles, your sense of the city, has it shift as places like Venice, um, like Silver Lake, like other places have gentrified over time? I think it's, it's, it's inevitable. Uh, places change. It will, it will never stay the same. And over time, it will shift. Um, it's disappointing to see a neighborhood that you grew up in kind of shift and, and have the appearance of, of this polished and possibly less compassionate um, aesthetic. But it, it is, it, it's just how things go. I appreciate it, D.B. Good to talk with you. Thanks so much. Longtime Angelino D.B. joining us from South Los Angeles, 866-893-KPECC. Pastor J. Edgar Boyd of First AME, Dean at UCLA Darnell Hunt, Loyola Marymount Professor and Director Center for the Study of L.A., Fernando Guerra with us. We're at 866-893-KPECC. With D.B., I was just thinking as he's talking about leaving because of gentrification in in Venice and then uh, you know being part of gentrification in South Los Angeles that is such an LA story 866-893-5722 we'll be back in one minute You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. Fresh Air with Terry Gross comes up in just a few minutes after us today. Terry talks with Pete Davidson, the star of the new movie The King of Staten Island, which will be reviewed tomorrow morning at 11 on Film Week on KPECC. We'll also have an interview, The Frames John Horn, with director Judd Apatow. That coming up tomorrow on uh, on uh, Film Week on KPCC, but Terry Gross with the star of that film, Pete Davidson, Saturday Night Live, uh, cast member uh, coming up in just a few minutes. Right now, we're talking about the dramatic changes that have occurred demographically in Los Angeles. Manny in Santa Ana. 
uh, you've seen much change in your community, undoubtedly. Yeah, no, um, a lot of, uh, especially Santa Ana, right, the borderlines were Garden Grove, uh, Fountain Valley. So you start seeing more Asian community, you know, more Asian families uh, moving in, especially as soon as a home goes up for sale in Santa Ana, you know, hey, you know, we already know uh, what kind of, you know, who's going to move in, and it's going to be Asians just because, you know, out of respect, yes, all their churches, all their families are right by there as well. So I see, I've been living in Santa Ana since 2005. There's where I met my wife, so I decided to move there. I'm originally from San Gabriel Valley, La Puente, and my second home as well because of my dad's work was Boyle Heights. So you do see a lot of changes, a lot of family, a lot of friends that move out even further, and sometimes it has to do with rent. Yeah. Have to do, you know, people get pushed out and, hey, you know, we can't afford here anymore. We, we got to go further, further. One example was my brother. Um, my brother always had it hard. Uh, he's my stepbrother, same mom, different dad. So my, my brother always went from, he, he started in La Puente, then he moved to Fontana, then Rancho Cucamonga, then Colton, then further and further and further, closer to the desert. Why? Because he was always renting and the rent was getting cheaper and cheaper, further and further. So, I mean, yeah, it's such a common, yeah, it's a common living situation in Southern California, Manny. Before I let you go, um, what is a historically Latino community of Santa Ana, which, you know, it's really, it's expressed even in the business core of the city, um, the Mexican-American heritage of the city and population with more Asian Americans moving in, has has there been acceptance? Has there been um, interaction, uh, positive interaction in the communities? Oh yeah, no, absolutely positive. <laughs> it's it's the same thing, you know. Hispanic Latinos, you know, hey, they get tired of their taco burritos, so they'll go eat their, you know, we'll eat Vietnamese or Korean barbecue, or we we'll eat different. And likewise, them themselves, you see them going to Santa Ana going to get, you know, tacos, tortas, you know, you see that a lot. There's nothing wrong. I mean, it's just like, like you were, you know, like you were asking, you know, if we see any changes and yeah, there's changes. Yeah. Especially Santa Ana is hitting, if you notice, just the, the Orange County part, you know, you got Costa Mesa right on the bottom. You got South Coast Blanca, not that far away from there. I mean, you could see some people that, you know, they want to live right as close to the beach, right as close to Newport Beach, and people forget, hey, Santa Ana is not that far. I mean, from yeah, now, it's a big city. Yeah, I could go on a bike ride off the wash, and you'll be there. It's eight miles away. You'll be at the beach in 45 minutes. Yeah, all right. I appreciate it, Manny. Thank you for your call. Let me go back to Professor Fernando Guerras. He was describing his friend moving further and further out. I think all of us know people who have made that trek. Oh, absolutely. And it's based on economics. And, you know, you, you know, we talk about some of the larger African-American neighborhoods like Watts or South L.A. or Compton. But, you know, the DB who talked about Venice, I was growing up, Venice was a black neighborhood. Pacoima, incredibly African-American. And all those are, have really been uh, completely changed. And it's this whole process of gentrification. My beloved childhood neighborhood of Highland Park is now being incredibly um, uh, gentrified. And, of course, there are social and economic reasons. One of the major ones is that while um, a lot of good industrial high-paying jobs 
were very adjacent to African-American neighborhoods in terms of Compton and South L.A., and it was easy for African-Americans to get jobs in that industrial belt of the Alameda corridor and the 710. Sure, they were still getting paid less than whites, but they were still getting paid much above the average that African-Americans were making around the country. As we de-industrialized and those jobs moved away, blacks and a lot of others were isolated from the job opportunities, and then they had to begin to be mobile in terms of traffic and moving. And so a large part of the movement is also the lack of jobs in these traditionally African-American neighborhoods when they used to be abundant in the 50s and the 60s. Um, And Larry, you know, there's also consequences to all this. And I'm a political scientist, and the political consequences, of course, is that you're going to see less black political representation. Uh, And interestingly enough, we've seen the decline of black elected officials. Not very much, but I think it's going to really uh, progress in the next couple of years. I would make the argument today that blacks are better represented in Los Angeles than any of the 50 top American cities in relation to their population. Wow. And that's because of the history of the city? Correct. Okay. Uh, Fernando, please hold that thought, because I want to bring Dean Darnell Hunt of UCLA back in. Dean Hunt, are you concerned that uh, African-American political representation will wane? You know, this is an ongoing um, discussion in in the black community, and I think there are concerns among some people who celebrate the tradition of civic engagement that African-Americans have had in Los Angeles. Uh, African-Americans have been among the most civically engaged in terms of voting and other ways of participating in the the process. Um, You know, it's um, one of those situations where I think people are invested in trying to figure out how to maintain and to protect the presence of of African-Americans and their heritage in the city. Um, this whole question of gentrification with the, you know, the Crenshaw line, for example, going through the, the Crenshaw district down Crenshaw to the airport, um, you know, property values have increased dramatically. Um, we've seen just in a relatively short period of time, you know, all kinds of uh, transition in terms of who owns property in Lumber Park and Baldwin Hills, uh, enclaves that for the last several decades have been uh, sort of have signified black class status. Yeah. And Dean, I'm so sorry that I need to conclude, but I thank you very much for being with us. UCLA Dean of Social Sciences, Darnell Hunt. Our thanks to Pastor J. Edgar Boyd, Senior Minister of L.A.'s historic First African uh, Methodist Episcopal Church, and Professor at LMU, uh, Fernando Guerra Center for the Study of Los Angeles. Have a very good day.